The following sermon was delivered on July 25th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groth delivered this sermon entitled Kindness and Blessing on Ruth 2, 14 through 23. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from his word. The way a family sets a table at a special meal tells you a lot about that family's culture. In many American homes, you may find warm, puffy dinner rolls attended by soft butter or spread right next to it. An Italian home might have a big hearty roll that the primary server slices into portions for each member of the family. In a French home, you might find a long, thin baguette. And then in many East Asian cultures, I know a large bowl of rice would not be uncommon. Not quite bread, but close. In Latin America, a plate of warm tortillas may provide you with the wrapping material for meat, beans, rice, lettuce, and other fixings. In South Asia and East Africa, I had to look this one up, you might break bread with a delicious disc of naan or chapati. In the Middle East and North Africa, uh, setting I'm familiar with, family meals are attended with mounds and mounds of pita bread and tubs of hummus for dipping. Now, what do all of these scenes have in common? Well, I've certainly highlighted grains, and in most of my examples, bread. Bread. What has the communal breaking of bread come to represent in most, if not all, cultures and societies, warm friendship, delightful family life, hospitality, and then in our Christian contexts, one that I know this congregation is well acquainted with, meaningful spiritual fellowship. In other words, to break bread with someone is to demonstrate kindness that runs deeper than a polite greeting in the marketplace or a kind word in the office space. To break bread with someone is to be with someone, to know them. The book of Ruth opens, as we saw, I guess a couple months ago at this point, uh, or at least last month, with a scene of desperation, death, and dismay. As Naomi and Ruth then shuffle into the city of Bethlehem and its surrounding environs, they need to become the beneficiaries, the recipients of great kindness and generosity. They need to if they are going to make it through the barley harvest. They have no other hope but then to depend on the kindness of strangers. Chapter 2 opens with a ray of hope, in fact, in the person of Boaz, a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband, we're told. And then Ruth happens to end up in Boaz's field by God's providence after setting out to gather food for Naomi and for herself. And then we come to the passage before us this morning. In this passage, Boaz demonstrates exemplary kindness to Ruth in welcoming her to his table, in breaking bread with her, even serving her himself. As the mealtime scene unfolds in verses 14 through 16 and then, and then transitions in verse 17 uh, from Boaz's field to Naomi's sitting room, the text illustrates a profound gospel truth. The practice of extraordinary kindness 
leads to the experience of great blessing. Let me say that again. The practice of extraordinary kindness leads to, even inexorably, to the experience of great blessing. The passage presents this to us in two parts. Fairly naturally, following fast on the heels of Boaz's introduction, in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, complete the picture of Boaz's extraordinary kindness. And then verses 17 through 23 record for us Naomi and Ruth's experience of great blessing. Extraordinary kindness and great blessing. When Boaz himself comes to his field in verse 4 of chapter 2, earlier in the text, uh, we're told, now behold, it's an attention grabber. Our attention's arrested and driven to Boaz. He enters the spotlight. And what follows after that point is a series of three brief exchanges or conversations. First, between Boaz and his workers, and then between Boaz and Ruth. And we covered that last time we were in this book together. But then the third exchange, which is where we pick up today, you have um, Boaz inviting Ruth to a meal with his reapers, and there's an engagement, a conversation here with all three parties present. The first two exchanges we considered a couple of weeks ago, and they introduced Boaz as a warm-hearted, godly man, a pious man. He's a fearer of God. And today, our text rounds out that picture of his place, not just within the city, but how he relates to others. It shows us that Boaz possesses a truly extraordinary degree of kindness. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Some of you may dip bread into vinegar. I'll just make a note. Just consider this dipping sauce. It's a bit of an obscure term. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. The extraordinary kindness of Boaz here finds clearest expression in his speech in these verses, doesn't it? It's what he says that we get to know his kindness. But notice something. His speech is exclusively directive. He's issuing commands to people. He directs Ruth to do what in verse 14? To come and to eat. And then he directs his workers to do what in verses 15 and 16? To grant Ruth access, to honor her, to make her job easier even, and then to leave her to do her work. Are you naturally inclined to receive direction from your superiors? Think about it. Children, do you like it when your parents tell you what to do? If you work in a setting where you work closely with a boss particularly if you work in a very corporate setting. Do you like it when your boss tells you what to do all the time anyway? Or, particularly now, we prayed this for our Canadian brothers uh, in particular, when the civil authorities tell us to do things we think are inconvenient or even going beyond their authority, 
do we naturally want to submit to them? If God's law, putting aside our cultural situation, if just the Word of God is any indication, you and I need frequent reminders to be in humble submission to those in authority over us. The fifth commandment instructs us to honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And then this principle is applied throughout Scripture in many settings. I'll cite just a couple. The opening verse of Romans 13 famously says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Sounds severe to our ears. 1 Timothy 2.11 directs us, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Again, sounds severe, even offensive to our ears. Ephesians 5.22, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Titus 3.1-2 summarizes these principles. Remind them, speaking of church members, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We could spend all day multiplying examples like these. My point, by nature, we do not like to be told what to do. And so we need frequent reminders to submit to the authorities which God has put over us in our families, our communities, our church, and our society. And what's been true for mankind since the beginning is perhaps more true now than ever. We do not want to be told what to do. And yet, consider this. The extraordinary kindness pictured in verses 14 through 16 of our passage this morning is in the imperative mood. It's in the mood of commandment and direction, of being told what to do. Boaz shows kindness in giving very clear, and perhaps for some in his company, uncomfortable instructions. But these are sweet directions, are they not? In telling Ruth to come here, what does Boaz indicate to us today? Ruth out of deference for custom or, or, or religious law. She's, she's been going about her work from a respectable distance away from the Israelite field hands. But now Boaz commands her to come close, to sit at his table and to eat with them next to the reapers as one of their own. This Moabitess come into the company of Israelites to eat, to share a meal, to break bread. He calls her to draw near to find refreshment and nourishment. She who is without hope in the world is called upon to draw near to the most obvious source of help presently available to her. That's a sweet direction. That is a gracious commandment and instruction. What does this part of the picture resemble right here at the front of our text? Some have made the error of trying to read into this narrative a romantic plotline at this point. She caught his eye, boy meets girl, and the rest is history. But there's no indication that there's any romantic attraction at all whatsoever between Boaz and Ruth here. In fact, I'd say the opposite. The rest of the tale, chapter 3 in particular, which we'll look at in coming weeks, suggests that Boaz is utterly surprised that she uh, has any interest at all in pursuing him as a kinsman redeemer. 
There's no romantic thing going on here. No, this story is it's much too ancient for all of that. There's no modern romance. This is a story of redemption and salvation. In calling to Ruth to draw near, Boaz resembles our Savior, our Redeemer, our God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2 sets out the way of salvation and redemption in a clarion call, super clear. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The Savior himself in his earthly ministry uh, right before our New Testament reading today invited, no, 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 he directed in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Boaz saw Ruth standing afar off in her need and desperation, and he said, come here and eat with me. He himself served her until she was satisfied and she had some leftovers. And this picture should elicit a question, or I'll pose a question out of this picture. Are you here this morning hungry, desperate, perhaps overworked, looking for some good thing from God? Some good thing to ease a troubled conscience? Some good thing to wash you clean of guilt and shame. Some good thing to show you the way of holiness and not of legalism or man-made religion. Holiness that is fellowship with the triune God. If this describes you, if you're standing afar off from the Lord Jesus, then humble yourself before His voice. And when He says, come, come. Come to Him. Are you ready to sit and to dine with the Lord Jesus Christ at His table? Because He's ready to break bread with you. And He's ready to serve you. He promises to provide all those who come to Him all that you need for godliness in this life and then eternal bliss and everlasting rest forever. It's a sweet commandment, isn't it? Having set up Ruth at his table, Boaz turns to his workers and he gives them a series of instructions then as to what he expects of them as they make room for Ruth. Not only are they to tolerate her, but they are to do some things above and beyond that which was required in the letter of the law. If you might recall a couple weeks ago, I, I drew from Leviticus and Deuteronomy to, to show you what was required of landowners in Israel. They were supposed to leave the corners of their fields um, unharvested so that gleaners, impoverished persons in the community could come after the harvest was, uh, was nearing its completion and, and glean off of what remained. But he tells them to pull out for her some grain from the bundles and to leave it that she may glean. What does this mean? When harvesting grain by hand, 
These workers would have been grabbing the stalks of grain with one hand and then cutting them with a farming implement, perhaps a sickle or, or some other kind of curved knife or blade, and then bundling them together into what we call sheaves and leaving them on the ground to be picked up. And so when Boaz tells his workers to allow her to glean among the sheaves, he's telling them that she can pick grain in the portions of the field where they already harvested the grain. In fact, she can pick grain right around the, the finished product. She could pick over their work. He's, he's opening the best section of the buffet line for Ruth, and he's charging no admission fee. Extraordinary kindness. What Boaz commands his field hands to do, it's, it, it's in no small measure an illustration of what Christ commands church officers, and especially elders, to do in service to the flock of God. And this should be on our mind as we consider not only my uh, impending ordination, but also what it is we expect from Dr. Piper, from the elders and the other officers, the deacons, that will be um, elected and, and ordained in this church. In John's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me three times? And each time when Peter says yes, Jesus commands Peter to do what? to feed or tend or shepherd my sheep. Officers in Christ's church must heed the voice of Christ, the voice of Christ which calls us to dine at his table and then to share generously the nourishing word of God with all those uh, around, with the people of God, with the flock of God. And in this work of selfless giving and provision is extraordinary kindness. Before moving on to our second point, take a moment and just dwell on this. This extraordinary kindness of God pictured in Boaz, but which in our experience leads to repentance, resulting in faith, which gives us life. Praise be to our God, who loves to save sinners, who loves to show kindness to strangers who are far off and have no business drawing near to him on their own, who loves to reconcile rebels and transgressors like you and me to himself through Jesus Christ. It is the voice of Christ that says, come. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We had the Lord's Supper yesterday in Presbytery, and I was deeply moved, reflecting on his kindness and blessing to us. And calling us to dine with him at his table. Verse 17 then marks the transition point. It's a transition point where the narrative shifts into a record of Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi's experience of great blessing um, in response to Boaz's extraordinary kindness. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. So she, that is Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I said that Ruth is a woman of action? <laughs> Look at all that she does. She doesn't say much in our passage this morning, but even just in these verses, she's doing this, doing that. Step one, step two, she's a hard worker, she's industrious, and she's of great help to her mother-in-law, Naomi, again later on, 
We're told that she's better to Naomi, more worth to Naomi than seven sons. And Ruth returns home here uh, somewhere uh, with somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of barley grain. I think that's the equivalent measure of an ephah. Plus, I believe the text is suggesting that's in addition to her leftovers from the midday meal, which she then shares with Naomi. And the take from this one day of gleaning will actually provide for the women's needs for a while. It's more than one day's worth of subsistence. Boaz has been exceedingly generous, and this material blessing is the first of four features of uh, Naomi and Ruth's experience of great blessing, and I'm getting these uh, just to, to tell you from uh, a good commentary on Ruth by Daniel Block, an Old Testament professor at Wheaton. He highlights four features of blessing. Not only are Ruth and Naomi materially blessed by the day's work, as indicated in these verses, but as is evident from verses 19 through 23 then, they experience personal or relational blessing, they experience long-term economic blessing, and then domestic blessing. The personal blessing in verses 19 and 20 I think is the most significant, and, and I want to return to that, that feature of their blessing after briefly considering the other two which I've mentioned. So again, in, in case you're jotting things down, you have material blessing for immediate needs, personal or relational blessing with Boaz, and then economic blessing and domestic blessing. Let's look at the economic blessing in verses 21 and 22. Ruth relays to Naomi that Boaz invited her to remain in his field for the duration of the harvest season. This is what she says. Furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. You know, these verses, they parallel, in some ways echo even, the opening verses of the chapter when Ruth first, first proposes her plan to go gleaning in the fields, and Naomi says, Okay, go, my daughter, without much comment. And now we hear something of Naomi's heartfelt concern for Ruth, don't we? Though she may not have said anything before uh, to Ruth because she knew how desperate their situation was, um, she now is concerned to share with Ruth that she's been worried about her safety and welfare. She's been wondering what is going to befall Ruth in the fields. I've already lost Elimelech, Mathlon, Achilion, Orpah, return to Moab. All I have left is Ruth. What if something happens to her? It's the heartbeat of a loving mother-in-law. And Having found a safe field in which to work, Naomi and Ruth agree upon this long-term plan then to provide for their economic well-being. She's relieved that Ruth has found a safe place, has found protection, shelter in God's sight. And she encourages her to continue there. She knows that Ruth isn't going to lounge around the house. She knows the kind of woman Ruth is, and she's relieved that in her work she won't be in danger. Now, for Ruth's part, I think there's a hint of excitement in her words. Do you remember hearing Boaz invite her to stick around for the whole harvest season? I hope not, because it's not in the text at all, except where Ruth quotes him. That's where it comes up. So it's not entirely clear what's going on here in terms of the story, but what is sufficiently clear from our text is that Ruth responds to Naomi's 
Identification of Boaz as a relative, as someone who has an interest in their welfare, with a suggestion of a long-term plan of action. Perhaps Boaz did say something to her, but perhaps it's implied, I don't know. The point is, though Ruth is a Moabitess, a detail pointed out right here in, in verse 20, though Ruth is a Moabitess, um, oh, in verse 21, I'm sorry. She has no real expectation at this point that Boaz could take her into his household, yet she recognizes extraordinary kindness when she sees it, and she, along with her mother-in-law, along with Naomi, experience great blessing because of that kindness. Blessing that now is going to have a term, a duration beyond this single day. In verse 23, the passage concludes with a statement of Naomi and Ruth's domestic blessing then. We've looked at uh, material blessing for the day, economic blessing for the long term, now domestic blessing, what their house looks like. We read, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth works in the field with Boaz's female workers, and she lives with her mother-in-law. This is the details of her life. When you meet someone new, they say, where are you from? From Greenville. What do you do? I work at Greenville Seminary. I work in such and such factory. I work at such and such store or office. Uh, where do you live? I live in Duncan or Chesney or Woodruff or Greer. These are the two details. I have five kids. I have, I've been married 20 years, whatever it is. A family which has all but been annihilated in Moab finds stability and livelihood in Bethlehem. Naomi and Ruth, they, they experience this great blessing because of Boaz's extraordinary kindness. The Lord God Almighty loves individuals. He bestows grace upon you and me through faith, confession, forgiveness, repentance, holy living, and our unique experiences as Rick or Josh or Joey or Zach or Jocelyn or Brenda or Rachel or whatever. But just as we share family names with those in our household, so too does our God bless us as covenant families as the Longs, the Marcuses, the Bensons, the Delellas, the Pipas, the Groffs fill in the blank. He has an interest in our households. He has an interest in our families, our relationships, our domestic condition. And then most gloriously, he weaves together our families and our households into a, a broader society, if you will, into the body of Christ, his church, and he delights in our peace, our purity, our holy fellowship together, our growth in grace as a body of believers, as a, as a body of households. He rejoices when we break bread together as brothers and sisters in the church seated around the table together, pictured most beautifully in the Lord's Supper, but even in our, in our holy fellowship. Now, I want to return to verses 19 and 20. I want to consider the personal or relational blessing which Ruth and Naomi experienced. As I mentioned before, this is the most significant feature of Ruth and Naomi's experience of blessing. This is the pinnacle of their blessing. It's also the most complex. There are two aspects. There's a giving and a receiving. And this giving and receiving, it both go both ways. Look at verse 19 with me. Her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? 
May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. Now imagine the scene uh, from Naomi's perspective. Imagine you're Naomi. Ruth comes in. She's got this huge bundle of barley. I mean, she's been lugging this thing around all day. And then a, a generous portion of grain and as well as some additional food. You take one look at Ruth and her massive haul and you say, where in the world did all that come from? Where did you get that? Is Naomi really concerned with Ruth's location during the day? Does she want GPS coordinates or something? What's she really asking? The next thing she says tells us, may he who took notice of you be blessed. Naomi's amazed at the extraordinary kindness of this unknown benefactor at this point, uh, represented in what Ruth has brought home to her, her harvest for the day. She wants to know the personal source of this kindness. Who did this? Who did this for you? Ruth innocently informs her that the man's name is Boaz. It's this, this guy Boaz. Now remember, Ruth has no idea who this Boaz guy is. That's a detail we have from the beginning of the passage, but no one told her who Boaz was. She doesn't know he's of the clan of Elimelech. She doesn't know, she has no clue that he, being one of Naomi's closest relatives through her deceased husband, is a potential kinsman redeemer, as I explained a couple weeks ago, a prospective groom. She doesn't know that. And even if she did know those things about Boaz, I don't think that she would suspect that he could become her husband because she's a Moabitess. But he blessed them royally all day. Blessed both of them through Ruth. And Naomi recognized that. Ruth remembered his name. And Naomi recognized his name. Naomi's a godly woman. And her experience of blessing in response to Boaz's extraordinary kindness is to then bless him. Before she even knows who it is, she says, may the Lord bless him. She wanted to know the name of the man to whom she could then call upon God to bless. Now look at verse 20 again. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now, is it the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness or is it he who should be blessed who has not withdrawn his kindness it's a bit ambiguous, but the only other place where this language um, is uh, really closely echoed or imitated in the Old Testament is in the account of uh, Saul, uh, King Saul of, uh, of Judah being killed, his body being desecrated and dishonored, and then um, the men, uh, the closest uh, Israelites to their going and retrieving his body and giving it a proper burial. And David says, May they be blessed who showed kindness or concern uh, to the living and to the dead. Nowhere in the Old Testament is it said that, that God shows chesed, kindness, 
to the dead, only to the living. So I believe that suggests to us that Naomi is referring to Boaz as he who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Remember what Naomi said in the, in, uh, the previous chapter. She referred to uh, Orpah and to Ruth uh, that way as well, as showing kindness to the living and to the dead. Now here, the point is, the narrative slows way down. Slows way down. Naomi repeats herself. It's redundant in blessing Boaz and then breaks the news to, Na- to Ruth that he can render aid that is greater than anything that Ruth might glean in the barley fields. Things are starting to come together a little bit. He can redeem them. And the next chapter shows us how. In blessing him, Naomi reveals something of Boaz's character. He's shown extraordinary kindness to both the living, Naomi and Ruth, and the dead, Elimelech and his sons. And in so doing, Boaz represented the protective wings of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he himself mentioned in verse 12. As Christ would one day do perfectly in his incarnation, Boaz embodied the grace of God to those in need. What is Naomi's response? To bless him. What is to be our response to our experience of God's blessing to us? To bless him for his grace. It's what we do morning by morning, evening by evening in this place, and I hope in your homes. We bless the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, redeemer, savior of his people. In this congregation and in the Presbyterian Church in America as a whole, we believe that worship, uh, the worship of the one uh, true and living God, is mankind's highest duty and greatest delight. It's what we love to do. This is to be our impulse, our instinct as a church and as individual Christians. He made us. He saved us in Christ. He promises to raise us in glory, all out of the infinite stores of His wondrous grace. So let us praise Him. Let us bless His name in times of great triumph and success and in times of dark tragedy and distress. What you turn to when you're at your best and when you're at your worst and everything in between. That's your impulse. That's your instinct. May it be to praise the Lord God Almighty. What else is there for us to do with the breath in our lungs and the life in our veins than to bless the name of the Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ came to save us, but he did not do so as a worldly conqueror, as a billionaire philanthropist, or an an inventor of conveniences that that, uh, make our lives more comfortable. No, he came to break bread. He came to serve sinners in service to his Father. He came to accomplish for us redemption. Our text today teaches us that the the practice of extraordinary kindness leads to the experience of great blessing. And we've seen the extraordinary kindness of Boaz, this mighty man of God leading to Ruth and Naomi's experience of great blessing at his hands. As beautiful and as moving as this narrative is, my friends, it pales in comparison to the kindness of Christ and to the blessings experienced in his church. It's nothing but an echo, a shadow, of our experience of Christ's blessings and kindness to us. 
Indeed, Christ's extraordinary kindness is God's perfect goodness to us, wrapped up in sinless humanity, but humanity nonetheless, broken as so much bread upon the cross, but then raised to everlasting life with a promise for you and for me, for all those who put their trust, their faith in him, who look forward to the resurrection themselves. Christ came to be kind, not to make you comfortable or ease in your sin, not to impress the cultures of the world with his winsomeness and reasonableness, no, or his relatability, but to be kind, loving kind, in blessing sinners, winning for them redemption in his death. He uniquely can do that. He uniquely did that. I can't emphasize enough. So the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe Jesus Christ lived and walked among us? Do you believe he died? And do you believe that death meant anything? Do you believe he was raised from the dead? You've heard the report of his extraordinary kindness this morning. You've seen and you've tasted of his perfect goodness and grace, some of you for many decades, many years. But yet he still calls each and every one of us to come near, to dine with him, to fellowship with him. And we all lapse in that, don't we? So whether you've been walking with him for decades or you've yet to find shelter under his wings, he says, come near, come near and be blessed. Come near and bless his name. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.